Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon for this part de or part two of a chat with David Coverdale. Now, this isn't the same chat where we did two hours and split it up into two parts. No, this was a completely new interview done a week later. And we, of course, are discussing the Rock Album, a, a new collection of the group's best rock songs, uh, refurbished, repainted. Made sound, whatever. In fact, I'll read you from the press release. Revisited, remixed, and remastered. And uh, Alan Niven, like on a previous show with drummer Steve Gorman, David and I spoke about you briefly. Uh, He started talking about Love Ain't No Stranger. And I said, ooh, my co-host loves that song, Alan Niven. And David said, the manager? Yes, yes, the manager, Alan Niven. So first of all, uh, bonjour. How are you? I am very well. How are you today? Oh, excellent. Ex- always excellent when you have David Coverdale on. Now, my last interview with David before these last ones, I think dates back to like 2013 or 2014. There was this this long gap of releases and greatest hits and box sets and, and Dave doing all kinds of press and I, and I just couldn't find the moment, the time, the connection, whatever. And then now two in two weeks. So there we go. I am I am satiated and happy. Uh, but I will ask you this. On the Steve Gorman interview, or in his book, he, he talks about, because we were talking about Rick Rubin last week, he talks about how Rick Rubin and Def Jam failed to pick up an uh, option for a, a new album. And, of course, with David Coverdale, uh, before last time, we talked about how you toured with Great White. Did, did any of your bands ever have that sort of fortuitous luck where a record company failed to pick up an option or, or missed something that ended up benefiting the band or a band? Well, well, funny you should ask that. Um, in the late 80s, Great White was signed to Capitol Records. And... Our contract was a two plus two plus two. In other words, they committed to making two records and then they had an option to pick up the next two records and then they had an option to pick up the next two records. And that'll tell you something. That'll tell you that that was a good contract um, because ordinarily a label would usually go one at a time and not have to commit to two records on each option. The other thing you'll notice is that there were six records, not seven. And seven was the industry standard. They'd stick you for seven records. So there you've got two indicators right there that that contract for capital was really good. And there's a, a little bit of a story to that because that particular contract was negotiated way earlier in 1983 when the band was signed by EMI USA and EMI USA really wanted the band. So we got a really good contract for a new artist. It was very strong, strongly in the the band's favor compared to other bands. And when we got into this interesting situation that having been dropped by EMI USA, that Capital now wanted to re-sign the band a year and a half later. And we had a track that was all over 
every rock and roll station in the LA, KNSC, KLOS, KMET. KMET played Face the Day for 16 weeks in heavy rotation, unheard of. Also unheard of was the fact that it was an independent record and I'd done it on my own and promoted it on my own. Um, and KLOS and KMET were notorious for only playing tracks from bands who were signed to major labels. So there was definitely a reemergence of interest and momentum for the band. And I stuck my head into the business affairs office when we were going through the process of, well, now we've got to get a contract for capital. And I talked to a guy called Kevin Breen and I chanced my arm because apparently I used to do that a little bit in the back in the day. I looked at Kevin and I said, Kevin, we don't need to do the contract. We don't need to form a contract. And he looked at me and he said, why not? I said, we already have one. Let's just take the old EMI USA contract, update it and use that and get going. And he went and talked to Don Zimmerman. And to my amazement, they came back and said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll just reactivate the old contract. So we were on a two plus two plus two and decent royalty rates. And after twice shy I got was released I got a phone call from the band's attorney saying that he had received a phone call from business affairs in capital in an absolute panic because when you call your um, option you have a window of time in which to do it in writing and if you don't call for your option within that window of time in writing then the band is free and clear and the band's lawyer is calling me up and saying, you're free and clear from capital and you're approaching 3 million sales on the current album. What do you want me to do? And it was a moment of ethics. And I sat there and I thought, well, if I tell the attorney we're free and clear and to act on that, I know somebody who's going to lose his job and he'll probably never get another one in the industry. And he did something really cool for me by going with that contract in the first place. So my instruction to Mario Gonzalez was have him backdate the overcall in writing, send it to me, and I'll sign off on it. I'm not going to send that guy around the U-Bend. And that's what we did. We accepted the option, and on we went with capital. Of course, you know, no favor goes unpunished. Um, the... Zimmerman went, Berman went, uh, we ended up with Hale Milgram um, in a cold, brutal world. It might have been better to move on to another label. Um, but it, was, it would have been an unethical and immoral thing to do and dishonest. And apart from that, we had a lot of relationships with people within the capital structure globally at that point. Um, you know, we, we had personal relationships with the people who went into the local road radio stations and promoted our records to those radio stations. And there was also that aspect to it too. It's like, you know, maybe the devil we know is better. And when it comes down to it, the ethical thing is to just backdate it and say, you took us to the dance. We're at the dance with you now. We're going to stay at the dance with you. What was that overall then a, a, a smart move because you, 
you know, you have uh, guns over at Geffen. You have, uh, I don't know, where, where, where was Havana Black in all of this? What label did they end up being with? Um, Capital. Capital. Was, was it strange for you as a manager to have relationships with different labels for different bands? Or was that just sort of standard practice? Um, a little bit of standard practice. There was uh, a, a record I made with a guy called Michael Thompson, who is one of the top session guitar players in LA still to this day. Um, an extraordinary player. And uh, I was going to put... Um, him on a new label that was being formed by Universal that was going to be called, funnily enough, Uni. And um, I got called into Geffen and Rosenblatt and Zutau beat up on me horribly saying, why are you going to take this to Uni? You're working with us with GNR. We want the record. Tom wants the record. Put it on Geffen. And it was hard for me to say no because we were at a dance with, with Geffen on GNR and solid relationships, solid achievements. It was impossible for me to refuse. Um, and then Geffen fucked the record up. And I, I had the infuriating moment of having a lunch with Geffen where he had the gall and the balls to sit opposite me. He was screaming about something else as well at the time. He said, I did you a favor. I made you a record for your MTB band, and I did use that favor. And I'm sitting there looking at him going, you what? Your fucking company bullies me to get it onto your label, and then you fucked it up. I mean, you know, shit happens. Um, oh, that's great. But, but we, uh, in, terms, in terms of being a smart thing, at the end of the day, you go to bed alone and you wake up alone, and I like the fact that I have a clear conscience and that I made the right decisions from a basis of ethic when I had to make decisions that involved ethic. And that is important to me. And that's something I will do for myself every time. So the, the, the question for me then is, why was Great White then never signed to Geffen? I mean, Geffen was getting everybody, White Snake, Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith, etc. Why, why did they never say, hey, Great White sold three million records. They're managed by the guy who manages our... Hey, come on over. Why was that never extended? Well, at the point where the option, where Capital failed to uh, call on the option, um, I kept that as very discreet information. I talked to the band about it and told them why the decision was being made the way it was. Um, the band's lawyer knew about it, and that was about it. Um, you know, because again, if it had come out and been a big story, Kevin Breen would have lost his job. And Kevin Breen did a huge solid by reinvigorating a contract for us that if we had started from scratch, we wouldn't have had such a good contract. So it was the right thing to do. It certainly was. And uh, uh, who was that guy we spoke about last week that you didn't that you really didn't want to be on a label with? Um not the guy who oh, was Gary Gersh. Gary Gersh. Oh, there we go. I just, just wanted oh. to get Gary Gersh back in there because I, I know how much you love <laughs> when we bring him up. He he is absolutely your favorite person, right? Right there with Rick Rubin. If, if there was oh, a party, <laughs> if you had a party, and Rick Rubin, uh, Gary Gersh, 
and um, uh, John Kalodner, John Kalodner were there. <laughs> How much fun would you have that night? Uh, I'd be practicing what we might call social distancing. Only six feet, or, or would it be more like 666 feet? It would be a minimum of 12, because when somebody coughs and splutters, particles travel for at least 12 feet. So I'd be at least 12 feet away. Oh, that, that would be one hell of a party, let me tell you. Anyway, uh, speaking of a party, it is always a party to speak to uh, Sir David uh, Coverdale. Uh, Mr. Coverdale, is, I am going to refer to him as Mr. Coverdale for the rest of my life. Uh, there are certain... You, 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 might, you might be able to comprehend this now, but I've always thought of David as the Richard Burton of rock and roll because of his accent, his articulation, his eloquence, and his diction. And just in my mind, I kind of think of him as the Richard Burton of rock and roll. He really is. And, and also, he, he's got an incredible memory. We started talking about a couple of songs um, that, uh, you know, random white snake songs. And he started telling me these stories about them. I was like, oh, oh my. Like, like super recollection. Anyway, here he is. The one, the only, Mr. Coverdale. We are speaking with the uh, legendary vocalist uh, David Coverdale, the new Rock album comes out on June 19th. And as we said in the uh, previous interview, Dave, I, I've had it. Oh, David, yeah. I've had a chance to hear it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> See, we're doing this so I've much known, now. I've known grown, I, listen, I've known grown roadies rip their own heads off rather than call me Dave. But go on. <laughs> well, it's just because we're doing this so often that, uh, that I, I figure we could go to a more familiar uh, de petit nom. Uh, but no, I'm kidding. Uh, well, I'll call you Mitt. I'll call you Mitt then. <laughs> Just don't call me Michel. As long as you don't call me Michel, we're uh, good. No, well, maybe bon chance. <laughs> maybe not. But all right. Uh, Sorry, so, so we we talked about the rock album and the, and the fact that some of these songs were getting a a, a fresh coat of paint. Uh, all we, of them. All of them. And, and by the way, they yeah. sound great. the The video for Still of the Night was put out recently. The repainted Still of the Night was put out recently. Man, this, this stuff is good, and and I'm telling you, I've I've got this 320 song White Snake playlist in my phone, so I know all the intimate uh, details of these songs and the rock album. Man, uh, so let, let's pick up on that. But we we also had this blues yeah. album. I'm curious about this blues album that's coming out in in February. Well, we can, you know, now we've affected this fabulous uh, brotherly cross-border universal friendship. You know, we can we can do this more often if you want. It's not exactly like I'm preparing to go on tour, so there's much more time. Although we are very busy right now, currently assembling the uh, Restless Heart box set, which I think will be for Christmas next year. Uh, and the elements in that are as tasty, if not tastier. The pre-production stuff, what we call the evolutions, uh, is even even better. We have a guy called Pro uh, Professor Tom Gordon works with us. He's a professor at UNR, University of Reno. Uh, and we've been working with him since he was an intern at 17 or something. Now he's like 105 years old or something. But he does incredibly caring, sensitive work on the evolution. So we are pretty busy doing stuff in this appalling downtime. But, you know, as, as we discussed before, um, the consistency was very necessary with having so many, uh, with having such a long career, 
working with so many different people, both in the technical side and the performing side, I wanted to ensure that, that the legacy of Whitesnake had a consistency, um, a sonic consistency, uh, which was appropriate for this time in our lives. And hopefully uh, will be for, you know, forever. I don't think I want to go back and repaint them in my 80s, you know. So this was, has been a labor of love, fulfilling a dream, uh, as I think we discussed before. Uh, and it's, I think, uh, using some of that, the, the globally famous, internationally famous songs like Still of the Night and Judgment Day, uh, all of these songs are going to, you know, this uh, Good To Be Bad album, Forevermore album, but working with small independent companies, which was a boon uh, for a classic rock band, uh, they didn't really have the international uh, imprint to be able to get these albums, for instance, in, in my adopted country, United States of America. So a lot of these uh, fabulous hits, as it were, are hopefully going to introduce people or reintroduce people to the strength of the songs from the six or seven albums that we're drawing from. They really are. Um, you, you did mention the evolutions on these box set. The one thing on the box sets that I love the most are all these monitor mixes. Um, mm -hmm. to, to me, and I, this is going to sound strange, but I like that raw sort of four on the floor kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, how do you exactly define these monitor mixes and, and what can fans who don't really know, cause you listen to uh, deeper, the love, and I'm looking at one right here, uh, private, not, not private number. That's from the uh, other parking ticket. And so, oh, that was with, yeah, that was with, uh, for Phil, for Phil, Phil Collins. Uh, yes. Yeah. But it's in yeah. my playlist because I'm a completist. Well, he wanted to do, it's so funny. I kept the purple album so under wraps that even somebody as close as Phil uh, and Joe uh, and I uh, uh, email pals on a daily basis, um, but I, he wanted me to do mistreated, and I was I couldn't say, well, I'm actually redoing that shit now. So let me suggest William Bell and Judy Clay's. I'm a huge soul fan, as as you know, uh, and a, a beautiful song from the '60s uh, is that private number, and it worked out perfect for Debbie and me, I think. And it shows, a, it shows a different side to Phil, which I thought was cool. But anyway, go on. We digress. Well, we digress. But, but talk to me about these monitor mixes. Where do they come from? How do they differ from what the, the final versions are? I, I mean, are, are they just not mastered? What, what makes them a monitor mix? No, they are stuff that you take away with you if you run, about, run out of studio time for a particular period to review to make sure that, you know, uh, all the elements that you wish to achieve are there. For instance, I was listening uh, recently to Crying, because I know it's a personal favorite of yours. It is, and totally. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an epic of the, the Tom, Tom Gordon is edited together, of Adrian and I sitting in my writing room at uh, my lakeside home. Um, and... It just develops into this huge symphonic power epic blues. Uh, but, it, you know, it, we had to go through that initial period to get there. Now, listen, under no circumstances am I comparing our work to that of Picasso, but it's well recorded that Picasso would start a painting. And if you buy a Picasso, you may have actually six paintings behind what he ended up with, what he signed off on. 
uh, he'd paint over stuff. And, and, and I, I think that's the best uh, analogy I can make. You start off with a particular, like, for instance, the song Anything You Want uh, was a song I'd, I'd started called Red Light, Green Light. Um, and that's going to be on the Restless Heart box set. It's really, it's, it's really fun stuff. I'm complimented consistently through social media on the content of the box sets we do. I don't think anybody does anything quite as concentrated and as concise and showing people how free people were absolutely blown away at the different lyrics on is this love, you know, from the 87 evolutions. Uh, and this one is, is just glorious. You've got me jamming with those two amazing girls, Maxine Waters and Beth Anderson, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a great journey. And this time it'll be including a lot of behind the scenes, uh, video, um, which we found, uh, a restoration app, which can improve the quality, even though in those days we were using the finest, you know, eight millimeter or super VHS, if you remember, but with everybody having high def 4k LED screens, pixelations an issue, you know, on a larger screen. So we're working everything we can to get audio the best it can be and also uh, video. Uh, and I'm, I hope you noticed the difference in Still of the Night. I did. I, when I, you I... saw the HD version. I've got to tell you, I'd never seen, even though I edited the thing with Marty Karner, I can't remember seeing the end of my mic stand at that opening scene. <laughs> You know, the microphone legs? Yeah, yeah, I went, holy God. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm just standing there, obviously, grabbing my penis. But if you see the high definition, you go, oh, it's his mic stand. <laughs> oh, those, that... are, those are the little moments that are worthwhile, all the sweat and tears, you know. Of course. Uh, and, of course, uh, you've got the slow and easy acapella version on, on one of these box sets, which is, which is fantastic. Um, last it's time. Just, yeah. Oh, I, I love it. I, I have go. I have rock and roll, rock and roll women going into the slow and easy acapella, then to slow poke music monitor yeah. mix. It's a perfect blend. Um, <laughs> last time out, we were talking. You said that you didn't own the the rights to the first album, so Trouble, Love Hunter, Ready and Willing. No, I get my publishing. I get my publishing right. from there, uh, and the same with Deep Purple. None of the artists who created those albums from 1974 on have any say in however they're packaged, however low they go scraping the barrel in order to put out. Um, there's, there's never a request for, I think the last thing I did was cooperate uh, on the box of snakes. And, and there was part of me felt, that's it. I've done the best I can. It, it, they need to be remastered. But honestly, I'm not even sure if the 24 tracks still exist. Right. I know Bernie told me he's got one or two of them, the sneaky little bugger. But, uh, but uh, you know, there's nothing we can do with them. Um, we don't own them. It's that simple. The, uh, the album, Ready and Willing, um, I think Live in the Heart of the City and Come and Get It, was sold uh, to uh, Mirage Records, Lock, Stock and Barrel, without my knowledge. We only found that, uh, that out like five or six years ago. So I think there's a company, actually a Canadian company, that bought them, which... I'm, you know, we don't get, I just get my publishing money from these, these things and whatever record royalties are kind of negligible, sadly, but, um, 
So, you but, know, I have an idea of how to promote those songs. It's some super, super stuff. And, uh, and a lot of people, um, certainly European, where we started, uh, love and treasure the early memories, which I do too. But really, I can't do these box sets. I, I have no access to, to the tapes. They're, they're not mine. I, I took over. I sued for release, uh, div- management divorce, um, uh, in time for me to be able to record Slide It In, which became the first multi-platinum Whitesnake record. Um, so, it, yeah, it was most unfortunate. And everyone thinks, of course, we were together forever. But it was only three years. My contract called for two original studio albums a year. <laughs> God. Consequently, but, I, was, but, but with the, I was a busy boy touring and writing. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that in a second too. But with the whatever you call it, the Digital Millennium Act or whatever, do you not after thirty years get those back, or because no, somebody else no. bought? No, we've been we've been we've been in litigation for several years and signed off on it last year. There's, British contracts are as concrete as you can get, as dinosaur as you can get, but it's that's it. They're gone. You know. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, and I'm very sad. I'm very sad about it, but I would love, I, I, I know through social media how, uh, how much people would love to have them. And you know me, I'm an artist who likes to fulfill. The whole reason of me getting back in the studio was when I was running the BBS on whitesnake.com. Uh, and I'd say, okay, after all these years, what the fuck do you still want from me? And they came in. A greatest hits live album, a new studio album, and something else, and a, and a video, and I and I delivered all those things within twelve months. So that was, you know, I I try to, I try to give you what you want. It's that simple. But there are certain obstructions and obstacles that even I can't overcome. Well, listen, you're giving me a restless heart box set, so I'm good to go. I I, <laughs> I, I think that that album is. So so overlooked and it should have been massive well, but well know. the circumstance was if you remember I, I don't know whether we spoke about it but uh, there'd been a distinct uh, change in the dynamic a lot of the people i worked with so successfully at geffen records were let go and a lot of and, uh, i don't know whether you go back this far but record companies were sort of these big huge overtly corporate companies which when I started, I'd be dealing with executives who were musicians, who'd had a kind of epiphany going, well, I'm not going to be successful as a musician. Maybe I can get a job at a record company and still be involved with music because I love music. And that's my background, my early days with talking with guys who were musically oriented. You know, I still have a couple of them which, who I treasure, but mostly... Geffen changed it for all these young hotshot Bachelor of Arts graduates or whatever that had no connection to the street, no connect, certainly no connection to what I remember sitting on a roof with Jimmy Page, a roof in uh, um, the Bellage. It used to be the Bellage Hotel in, in West Hollywood, uh, is now the London. And Jimmy and I were sitting on the roof with one of the new young executives who leaned over patronizingly tapping me on the knee and saying things have changed since you were at mtv david <laughs> oh god MTV. you know and, but things have changed what in 12 fucking months you know so i refused to give them uh um the restless heart album 
And uh, so it's going to be new for a lot of people. It's, the way we've got it now, with the uh, as we've discussed before, Joel's come in and, and beefed up, or birth, in your language, birthed up the guitars. And uh, Derek Sherinian has just put the John Lord seal of approval, Scorching Hammond. It's like a beautiful hybrid of early, middle, and leaning towards like the slip of the tongue style. It's, um, I'm thrilled with it. I'm thrilled with it. You know, so Michael and I, Mikey Mack, who you've spoken to before, and I were tweaking a little bit yesterday. Uh, felt like one of Adrian's solos was a little soft, so mm-hmm. before it's mastered, we were tweaking that. But yeah, ever it's going to freak you, freak you out because there's some super, super stuff. All of these kind of demos and things like this, Mitch, there was never any intentions of releasing these things. This is just how it's unfolded. I can't wait. Now, the question is, is do I add to the 320 <laughs> song playlist or do I replace the the ones that are already there? Um <laughs> <laughs> one thing I should be changing them. One, yeah. One but thing. The, I, uh, but this. The, go, on, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say uh, one thing I wanted to ask that I didn't get to the last time was about, of oh. course, here I go again, crying in the rain, slide. And now I don't want the story about why we record it. We know it was for the American market, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, yeah. et cetera. We, we know that yeah. story. Uh, but what I wanted to know is at the time of, of choosing those songs to, to re record, were there other songs that you had tried out, say, for example, Ready and Willing or something, and it just wasn't working? Or did no. you? No. So it was only these three. No, so, no these no. are right. and, and And my writing partner for that project, John Sykes, uh, was adamantly against it. We did. He wanted to do Crying in the Rain because we changed it so much uh, and made it a feature for both him and for Cozy in those days. That symphonic centerpiece. So it really was turned it into the chariot race from Ben-Hur, uh, the way we were performing it. So we were excited to do that. And Geffen said, you guys have a great song, uh, which was never fully exploited. We want you to re-record it. It did not come from us. We had, you're going to break my heart again. I'm looking for love, which I still feel is one of my favorite uh, White Snake epics. Um, and that wasn't on the U.S. album. You know, it was on the U.K. album. Yeah, why wasn't it on the Why wasn't it on the U.S. album? Because I, I literally didn't hear hey, about that song until about ten yeah, years after. Thank the bearded wise one. Uh, although I must confess, uh, here I go again. Uh, continues did then and continues to be the most successful song in the White Snake canon. Um, it's huge globally and still resonates significant, very significant monies. It's one of the first songs that sync licenses come in for. Uh, it's amazing. It, it's got a life of its own, considering it was about my breakdown, my first marriage, as was crying in the rain, by the way. But um, so there, there was no intent on our part. Sykes and I were absolutely thrilled uh, with the songs that we'd written. Uh, for a new album. So when the Hero Go Again came, it just took us, you know, uh, what do you call it? A curveball, as they say. Uh, and I had to replace John's solo because it was definitely not one of his better solos. And I wanted to feature that on the last box set. And I'm afraid Keith Olsen or one of his engineers had uh, erased it, which is the primary rule in the studio is you don't erase anything. Um, and certainly not without discussing it with me. Uh, that was, you know, was very disappointing because I wanted to feature that on the bonus tracks. 
Okay, so so there wasn't like ten of these done. Um, you mentioned Keith Olsen, real no, quick. No, 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 and they and the other thing was uh, one of the biggest disappointments and compromises I think um, was on the Slip of the Tongue album when I designed the set for like a 21st century blues band with for Judgment Day. That was the the first song we wanted to go with, and literally I was finishing off mixing at the record plant in Los Angeles. And I had the three top guys from Geffen, my former manager, uh, who I miss desperately, Howard Corkman, who passed away three years ago. Um, All of these executives came in to say, we feel that Fool for Your Loving should be the first time. I was going, oh, my God, because they thought lightning had struck twice. You know, and I'm going, no, no, please, please. And I've never heard my band so demoralized as when I phoned them to say they don't want to go with Judgment Day. And I think it changed the whole energetic appearance of what was going on. Like, as if, I think what John and I felt on 87, going, doing Here I Go Again, uh, Crying in the Rain was so dramatically different and epic. But Here I Go Again is, in essence, the same, just played... With, I never really had a full complement of musicians doing the Saints and Sinners album. So a lot of it feels dis, disjointed to me, sadly. The songs are great, you know. Um, but so, and then, of course, there's no denying how amazingly successful it was, is, and continues to be. It's an evergreen, according to George Harrison, the blessing. <laughs> an evergreen. Um, Listen, I love all the versions. The impression, but the impression is that you don't have the as as much original material as you should i I come from that age when it was called progressive music you had to seem to be making progress and revisiting old hits or whatever was not seen as as progressive so that's a, a mindset that was mine but i swear to god it's uh it's the only song i can follow it in concert with is still of the night yeah, the only one. Such a great song. You know, oh. it's so big globally, you know. And I've really, it's a beautiful version. We've remixed it. You're going to hear that uh, the week uh, the uh, Walk album is released. Next week, we're releasing Love Ain't No Stranger, the high def version. Slightly tweaked again, but the video is great. It's so, we found this restoration stuff. It's very expensive and very painstaking uh, uh, for my guy Tyler Bonds to go through, but man, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. You know what? I, I, I'm gonna. So you have two more videos to come before the release of the rock album. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask <clears> a question <throat> for my co-host. Uh, I do this show with Alan Niven, who used to manage. Oh, who's great... that? What's that? Actually? Oh, yeah, with Alan Niven, the manager. Yeah, he... I haven't seen him for a lifetime. Yes, he he he's on the front of all these shows. We do talk ups after, and he he was telling on the last episode about how great White and uh, White Snake toured, but he did That's say. That's right. That's how I knew him first. Right, and that's how he said, but he said that Love Ain't No Stranger is his absolute favorite White Snake song, point final, no discussion, and now you said that you have this HD version coming out. Um, what can you tell me about that song in terms of how, how did it sort of come about, and, and what does it mean to you? Because it really is, to me, one of the defining songs. I know we say, Here I Go Again, yeah. and but. But love ain't no strange. I mean that that's as pure it's white huge. snake yeah. as as white yeah. snake can it's, be. Uh, it's it's huge. Um, thankfully, it's uh, another song of the 
personal favorite of the White Snake Choir. They sing it with me. It's a, a, an extraordinarily emotional experience every time. Um, it's also, tell Alan, it's also Cozy Powell's favorite, God Rest His Soul. But that's heartbreaking to have to follow names with that. Cozy Powell's favorite song from the side of the album was Love In A Stranger. Um, that song came about, and the first person I played it to was Mick Ralphs of Dadco. Oh, wow. He'd popped over to jam with us. Yeah, we were rehearsing at John's, John Lord's estate at that time, God rest his soul. Um, and I, I called his estate Shagham Hall, Shagham Hall, or whatever, kind of one of those naughty covered elisms. Um, and, and Mick lived close by, and he'd come over. We were dear friends, a beautiful soul. Um, and I said, here, what do you think? You know, the guys took a break or whatever. And he and I were just talking. I said, Mick, can I play you something? See what you think? I haven't played it to the band yet. And I played him the intro. Uh, and he went, oh, David, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And he strapped a guitar on and stuff. And then um, I brought Mel Galleon, remember, from Trapeze? Oh, yeah. A beautiful soul. God rest his soul. Fucking. <laughs> but Mel came in and we were jamming away. He was so nervous. He actually... Uh, he was so nervous to write with me. He brought me two pieces of music that he'd written with his brother that I was completely unaware of. So I'd finished writing these songs when he, uh, he, he, you know, we got on very, very well. But when he owned up, I went, oh, my God, you better clear this. We can't take these off off the album. You've got to clear this with your brother. You know, I said, this, this is on you, Mel. Forgive me, but... I, I thought these were new pieces of music. But Mel and I sitting down, uh, he was the one who came up with the, the, the first chord um, of the chorus going to G from uh, all of this beautiful uh, ascendant riff, the verse stuff. I had the verses and stuff, and he came in with a chord, so beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's one of my personal favorites, oh, too. And I love the remix. Oh, the, the the remix, the rock album is great, and I'm and I'm telling you, and like Alan said, we're very very curious about this blues album because I'm just uh -huh. wanting, I just want to know what the track listing is. I want to know how it's put together. But before not I get, yet. you're no. not getting them yet. You're not getting the track listing yet. That's another show. Um, well, uh, hey, another show. And in between <laughs> that, you got White Snake the love songs. Well, well, not the love songs, just White Snake love songs. That's going to be October. Uh, and literally, we've just finished editing. Uh, White Snake fans will know that uh, I was planning a video for a ballad called Easier Said Than Done, um, way back when, after Love Will Set You Free. Uh, and the first edit I got, it, we did that really early in the morning. And some of my boys, we were in a casino in a Tahoe. And some of my boys, unfortunately, spent the night carousing. Uh, and there was a lot of footage that... Uh, that wasn't over complimentary. So I tried a couple of edits and I went, ah, fuck it, can't do it. So it was destiny. So now we have a new one, which we'll be featuring closer to October, which I'm utterly thrilled with. It's that it's, it really does justice to the song. So that's cool. Oh. But well, I can't do go over. I'll get into trouble with uh, Rhino. If I start talking about projects for next year, when we have, Something so immediately forthcoming, Mitchell. Yes, and of course, love will Michel, set you free. Michel, baby, Michel oh. Mobel. Oh, yeah, I know. That's, that's painful. No, I know. Well, you you deserve <laughs> one. 
That's painful. Uh, I will ask you this. Uh, on, on Twitter the other yes. day, I posted about the Reading Festival, and you replied to it. And I wanted to ask you, because it, it was fascinating. <laughs> you have Whitesnake at the top of the bill, and you have Tigers of Pantang debuting John Sykes that night. You have Girl on the bottom of the bill and Def Leppard, who, of course, Phil Collin goes over to Def Leppard later. And you've yeah. got Iron Maiden on top of the bill, and you've got Samson below and Bruce Dickinson. It was almost as if, you know, it, it was like baseball with all the major league teams scouting the Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Um, no, it was three amazing days. I'll tell you who was the highlight, though, uh, other than uh, having a great deal of fun, was Slade. Somebody dropped out at the last minute. I think it might have been Aussie. I'm not sure. Uh, and my agent, Rod McSween, said, David, what do you think about Slade? I said, I think fucking Slade would be a great festival act. And it was what, and the, oh, everybody's going, oh, my God, fucking Slade. And they came on and they slayed the crowd. And I took them after that. I took them on a big European tour. Uh, and we had a, just a blast together. Super guys. Uh, Noddy, great singer. He's the guy I recommended to Angus for uh, for ACDC after Bond's loss initially. But of course, Brian's an old mate from way back, you know. But um, yeah, but it was it was fascinating. We bit bit of a bit showy. <coughs> we got five or six six maroon uh, or as close to. Um, what the hell? It was six Rolls Royces. No, the maroon ones was a deep purple thing. Six Rolls Royces. And we had those kind of uh, diplomat little uh, tri-shaped, you know, uh, banners that you sit on the front of the, the wheels uh, with the original white snake, uh, retro snake, as we call it, uh, logo. So it was great. We get there and a beautiful uh, tech, ro uh, tech we had, roadies, ZZ McGill, beautiful Scots guy, another one who sadly passed. Um, he said, oh, David, there's a bit of a problem. I said, what is it? He said, Britt Eklund's in your dressing room. I said, what's the fucking problem? <laughs> so she was seeing, I think, the singer with Girl. Yeah, Phil and, Lewis. They got and married. I walked in, I said, yeah, I said, I'm afraid you guys have got to get out like now. And Phil Collin came up and said, I'm so very sorry. I knew this was wrong because I had all the booze in my room. You know, that's why Miss Eklund felt uh, entitled to go in and help herself. So, but Phil and I have maintained a fantastic friendship and mutual respect for many years. He's a lovely, lovely guy and uh, very gifted, very talented. I love seeing him stretch out with his solo stuff too. Um, but yeah, so we had a blast on both. I think the first one we introduced Ian Pace uh, to the crowd who just went batshit. It looked like I had some kind of master plan of reforming Deep Purple, but really under my own steam, which was not the case. Such a great festival, and I wish they would do them more. Um, can we talk Coverdale Page at all? Yeah, let's have a go. Let's go with the easy stuff first. Um, what was the first meeting with, with, with Jimmy? Uh, you know, the, the, where did, 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 did David Coverdale and Jimmy Page first meet? Because I was talking to Kevin Cronin of uh, REO Speedwagon the other day, and he started telling me this story about oh, I was on a plane or on a bus with David, and, and he was schooling me on all things Jimmy Page and about the kinks and about the, the studio work. And uh, where, did you where did you first meet him? Well, first off, that's news to me, but, <laughs> but Jimmy and I uh, were part were, with Purple and Zeppelin until Zeppelin just became so uh, 
over the top. You know, we had this kind of rivalry of attendance, uh, but pretty much in the States. The Zeppelin obviously owned the fucking roost and we owned Europe. Uh, but there was constantly this kind of little uh, niggling, oh, we sold 50,000 tickets to the Orenbell in Miami. Oh, we went just sold 60,000. Oh, we'd go back in and sell 65,000. But at mutual watering holes, that's when Jimmy and I would meet, and we'd often meet uh, at the Rainbow. I was very close with Bonzo. Uh, we got on very, very well. Uh, and Robert, of all things, until I got really successful, um, and I still have the greatest respect for him and sincerely hope one day we can uh, buy each other a nice fucking whiskey, uh, which would really be pleasing. Um, but the uh, I'd, interesting story. I um, 1990, the Liquor and Poker World Tour, uh, it was very obvious that in my, my personal life was was very distracting and, and not really it was very unsettling and, and very distracting from, from what I was doing in, with my life. And I was so incredibly busy. I had no time for reflection to go, is this what I want or whatever? So I actually, uh, prior to playing 1990 Donington, I'd, uh, basically sent, um, uh, my second wife home, and uh, and filed uh, official separation. Um, I knew it, it was done. It was it was over. And really, what I wanted to do our last show in Tokyo, I gave all my stage clothes and shoes to my wardrobe girl because I knew there was a furnace in the Yogi Olympic swimming pool backstage area in the complex. I said, "Here, burn them." <laughs> I was so done after four years; it wasn't even funny. <clears throat> so um, I said to all the musicians, nobody, uh, I told nobody what was going on personally. I just said I needed to take a break uh, to recharge my batteries and reflect on if I indeed wanted to continue in in this three-ring circus with all the acts performing at the same time. And everybody, I said, you know, if you guys get an opportunity for something interesting, please take it. I have no immediate plans, which was absolutely the truth. I wanted to get my private life sorted out. I had a beautiful home in Tahoe where it was a great place for me to go chill uh, and reflect. And that was, that was my plan. Of course, I meet Cindy like 10 days after I get home, uh, who became my partner and my wife and, and continues to be uh, for 30 years this year. Um, and she was very patient while I went through some very unpleasant legal aspects. Uh, and that's when I got a call. I'd called my agent and friend, Rod McSween, currently quarantined in Barbados. <clears throat> some people have all the joy. Uh, and said, don't be uh, calling me with potential work. I'm taking a long breather. I'm not sure I'm going to actually come back and, and do this. So uh, he went, okay, got it. And then shortly after, he was having dinner with Jimmy Page. Uh, and Jimmy was bemoaning he didn't know what to do. He was trying to get back into it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he, Rod said, well, what about David Coverdale? He said, well, he's got white snake. He said, no, actually, between you and I, he's put it on ice. And he went, oh, that could be really interesting because we'd met several times over the years and got really connected nicely. But he's like me. He's really private away from the gregarious performance stuff. Um, 
So the next thing, I get a call from Jimmy Barney, you're interested in doing a project. I went, oh, Jimmy, I love your work. I've been a fan since the Yardbirds. And, um, and I said, but uh, I, I mean, uh, and I was very forthcoming with him that it was taking a lot of my attention dealing with the legal aspects of divorce. Uh, but, you know, if, if he could be patient, then he had to fly to New York to master that first box set. Do you remember that beautiful uh, Zeppelin box set? It was, I think it was a four CD one. I'm not sure. Yeah. The, which had the cornfield cover with it was a. It was just called the remasters print. or something, right? The, ma- the masters was or the it remasters? Something like that. Something yeah. Like that. Well, well, he was flying to, uh, um, uh, to master it and stuff like that. So, you know, it was. It would have been rude for me not to have met him halfway. I'm in Tahoe, you know, he's in London. Uh, so we agreed to meet in New York. Uh, the lawyers were furious because we got on so, so well. We just said 50-50 across the board. <laughs> no negotiation. Uh, and we went, we shook hands and went. I was staying at the plaza in those days. And he was at the Ritz-Carlton. So we were within walking distance. So we go out and it's still cold. So we have overcoats on and scarves. And of course, we're walking and we stop traffic, Mitch. Taxis are beeping the horn, going, are you guys working together? Oh, my God. It was very, you know, hairs on the back of your neck stuff. Uh, And Jimmy and I looked at each other and said, this could be very special. But we just took our time on it, you know, and he was actually at my house working on songs for Coverdale Page when my lawyers called and said the divorce was made final. Um, so there was a an amount, significant amount of celebration, as you can see. I treasure the time I worked with Jimmy. He was uh, and we maintain a super positive uh, support mechanism and friendship. Yeah. It's really cool. We just pick up where we left off when we see each other. And, and by the way, but it wasn't it wasn't John Kolodner. It was. Rod McSween, who was the, uh, I've heard a lot of people taking credit for this, by the way, but it was Rod McSween who thought, ooh, they could make a good teaming. And we did. Well, you did. And, and, and I'm going to go off script here for a second, but, but take me for yeah. a little while and take a look at yourself. Are two of the greatest songs in your entire discography, those songs are just so damn good. I mean, if you could redo those with, with Joel and Reb and, and white snakeify them. Oh no, no, no! But, I love them. I'd love uh, personally. I'd love to remix what we have. You know, as yes, Jimmy and I have please. discussed it. I've got so much. We have so many outtakes and so many uh, like evolutions aspects. And I documented the whole making of the project on video. So there's, it's you know, it's immense uh, uh, the amount of material we have. <clears throat> but the circumstance is. Take Me For A Little While is the first song I wrote about Cindy. <laughs> that was first thing in the morning, the last thing at night. Yeah, I adore her. Um, and that was the, the, literally the first song I wrote uh, for her. Um, and for the, first, for the first time, it's not like a fucking Frozen. Uh, for the first time, I wrote a song from the perspective of two people, meaning my partner, Jimmy, and I, we'd had so many, through all the conversations we had, we had so many comparisons made in our lives. So many, we'd lost so many people close to us, him, you know, with Bonzo, uh, particularly me with Tommy Bolin and 
and crew, you know, loss was just almost second nature because of the lifestyle of a lot of the people who we worked with. Um, but I wanted the lyrics on that album to reflect Jimmy's as if they were, because normally my songs are David Coverdale journals without naming the names. Um, that's what makes me different from country, you see. <laughs> but the, the, I, don't, I don't name names. I know who it is. But the circumstances take me for a little while is like the perfect little balance of the Coverdale, Jimmy Page, life story, uh, lyric. It, it's absolutely stunning. And I'm just looking at it. I, I have uh, like four versions of Take Me For A Little While in my playlist. I've got a, a, a CHR oh, mix. Oh, the and... <laughs> ones with the girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the one with yeah. the girls. That, that's my favorite version, by, by the way, the one with the girls. Um, those, those girls, it was superb. Uh, treat. It was P.P. Arnold. I don't know whether you remember that name. It was um, yeah, the first a... time I ever saw Keith Emerson was when he was in a, a group called The Nice. And they backed P.P. Arnold, who had a big hit in England uh, with a Cat Stevens song, forgive me, Yusuf, um, called First Cut is the Deepest. Beautiful song. Um, and the Chanter Sisters, who I'd worked with on uh, my Northwinds album, beautiful girls, Doreen and Irene Chanter, just great singers. So it was P.P. and... Uh, uh, and the Chanter Sister did the background vocals on that song because, you know, it was very soulful, soulful song. That's the other thing, by the way, to add to your restless heart note. We've really pulled a lot of the soul out of those songs uh, and amplified it. Very soulful album. I'm really delighted with what we got. Anyway, Mick, I can't wait. Sorry, Carol. Digressing. Well, I was just going to say it is one o'clock and I know you had a I had a, a hard out at one o'clock because you had to get to, to another interview, apparently. So. Why don't we, we leave it at that? And, and when, by the way, when does the Restless Heart box set come out? Do we know? Well, we're probably, well, uh, uh, everything's uh, moved back. So we're looking probably, I should imagine, I'll obviously keep you informed, but new artwork and everything, it's going to be October, probably 2021. God willing. Tw 2021? Uh, oh, no, 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 no. That's too yeah. far. That's too far. It's yeah, you've got, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but literally, it hasn't been it hasn't been mastered yet. We work with Scott Hull at Master Disc, who's fantastic. You got to remember that pretty much every industry is upside down, and and we have such a super relationship with this fabulous master, uh, Scott Hull, in uh, that we wait for his availability. So we have. We're still waiting for the blues album to be mastered. Uh, I've delivered uh, both um, the Walk album, obviously June 19th and October for White Snake Love Songs, which is, a, as, as the president of Rhino said, David, this is an, a strong a, an album on its own. It's a standalone album, you know, which was very, very sweet to hear. It's great to work with such incredibly supportive people. We have the same vision. We're on the same journey. Uh, and at last, after all these decades, you know, I, I have a team that seems to be steady in very, un, very uncertain times uh, that I can work very close with and respect deeply and profoundly. Yeah. And, and the rock album, is, by the way, is great. I mean, when you start off at Still of the Night and you finish off at Forevermore, you, you're, you're, you're hitting all it's a hell of a journey man it is. it's a hell of a fucking journey I've driven to it I'm, you know I can only do modest workout I can't do too much strain stuff but it, it's 
super company. Uh, and as we just dis- discussed before, it's all it's these are these are set of albums. All as much as I love them, and I'm uh, incredibly uh, uh, engaged with them. Um, they are the like tasting menu for the forthcoming box sets. We, you know, I've got a five-year deal with Warner's, so uh, God willing, I'll be able to tour again, health-wise, and 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 uh, that would be. It's so important to me. We discussed before, Mitch. I think for me to be able to make my appropriate, grat- express my appreciation and gratitude and my love for the astonishing support my works uh had from people since almost 50 years it's mind-blowing and i'm really doing the best i can to deliver the best we got and uh so those you know we can repolish those memories you know it's lovely for me on social media uh as we release little bits and pieces uh, how people are hearing the difference without us stealing any integrity from the original. And the originals are always going to be there, you know. Um, but this was really necessary for me. And I'm, I'm thrilled we did it. And I'm thrilled I pursued this dream and fulfilled it. Uh, and I can only hope that people who enjoy Whitesnake will continue the journey with us. I think they will. And, and to be fair, there, there's essentially five new cuts for a lot of Americans because you've got these four yeah. from Restless Heart and you've got the one new, new... So, you know, you, you, you're going to rediscover the old ones and you're going to get to hear sort of five new ones. Everybody well, on, on the, there's three, I think it's three, I'm not even sure, but maybe three or four previously unreleased songs on the Love, on love song, you know. And the wow. new, honestly, the new version of uh, Deeper the Love and Is This Love are just a joy for me to hear. Uh, oh. It's really exciting and, and easier said than done, which I think could have been... You know, it's always funny. We've laughed about this before. Oh, my God, if we released this in 88, 89, it would have been a certified global hit or whatever. So let's have it as a certified global hit now, baby. Yeah, we can. We can. And on that, uh, thank Mitchell, you, sir. Toujours I thank plaisir. you with all my heart. No, oh, thank you, my darling. Uh, send my love to Carol. Um, Will do. And, uh, and Alan. Yeah, and good luck with everything. And Alan, and stay safe. And all your listeners and readers and... Uh, and I'm going to get into the shower and get back to the studio. <laughs> yeah, make more music, please. And uh, I'm going to go talk oh, to Dee Schneider yeah. now. It's impossible. <laughs> oh, good. All my best. Oh, well, are you speaking to Steve Gorman today? Yes, uh, I've got Dee Schneider next Send and Steve love. next. I will absolutely do that. Send my love. Steve Steve and I uh, connected at, at a, pay, a, a dinner for Jimmy Page, and it was... Uh, we never shut up talking together. He wanted to be too... Because he had that sports show for a time, mm-hmm. and I'm going... I don't know anything about fucking sports. And he's going, no, no, you're going to come on. Because we connected so well. So please send my love. He's a super guy. Absolutely. And uh, I, hope I hope everything is, is healthy and, and good. All right, brother. Merci. Bonsoir. À, à la prochaine. Bye-bye. Yeah, now. darling. Merci bien. God bless. Bye-bye. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Whitesnake, the rock album, on CD, digital, and 180-gram limited edition double LP white vinyl, available June 19th. Pre-order now at whitesnake.com. And don't forget to tweet at David Coverdale that you loved him on Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, follow Mitch LaFon on Twitter at Mitch LaFon. And subscribe to Rock Talk on iHeartRadio and Spotify.